Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. John is writing. He says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. When John says he was in the isle, it is the Greek word ginomai, which literally means through a series of events that I could have never anticipated, in a way that I could have never predicted, I came to find myself in the isle of Patmos. So you have to stop and ask, well, how did he end up on the Isle of Patmos, and why was the Isle of Patmos such a horrible place? Well, there's a lot of young people in this room today. I don't know if they even know the name Alcatraz. How many of you know the name Alcatraz? Alcatraz is the rock, the barren rock, which became a prison right off of the city of San Francisco out in the water. And you can't escape from the Isle of Alcatraz because of the waters. You'll die if you try to escape from there. Well, Patmos was very similar to Alcatraz, except it was 60 miles from the shore. It was completely barren. There was only one natural water source on the entire island. And in fact, today, that's still the only water source that is on the island. And when John was exiled there as a prisoner for his faith, he began ro roaming all over the island with his helper, whose name was Prochorus, looking for a place where they could live. And finally, they found a cave, a vacated cave, which was just below the Temple of Artemis, had a fabulous view out to the sea, but it certainly was not a place where any of us would want to live. And John, who was in his 90s, moved into that cave. And that cave became his home for 16 months. And for 16 months, on an island that had been totally raped of all of its vegetation, he and his helper had to look for food. They had to provide for themselves. Absolutely nothing was provided for them, not clothes, not shoes, nothing. They were literally abandoned to fend for themselves. And it's an amazing thing to me that though he was in his 90s at this time, John didn't sit down and have a pity party and feel sorry for himself. And in fact, today, if you go to the Isle of Patmos, which was quite a remarkable place to visit, there is a very old monastery which sits on the very peak of the mountain, the Acropolis, exactly where the Temple of Artemis or Diana used to stand. And when you go there, there are very early documents dating to the second century which documents what John did on the Isle of Patmos. What did he do? Did he just sit in the cave all day? No, there were prisoners on that island. And John in his 90s became very active in evangelization. In fact, there is a huge document that chronicles a contest of powers that took place between John and a local magician and how John cast the demon out of this man and the church of Jesus Christ was established and a Christian community was birthed on the Isle of Patmos while John was there in exile. And in fact, when Domitian died in the year 95, when John went down to the shore to board his ship to go back as a free man to Ephesus, history tells us the congregation went with him and gathered around the shore to tell their pastor farewell. I think it's so powerful because his faith was working regardless of where he was. He really had a faith that overcame the world around him. Just amazing to me. But now John's on this Isle of Patmos and he tells us in verse 9, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So that's his crime. His crime is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Then verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The word I was is again the Greek word genomai, which we would be translated in a way that I could have never predicted. It completely took me off guard by surprise. I could never replicate this experience. I don't know how I got there, but suddenly, abruptly, I found myself standing in the spirit. But in Greek, there's no capital S. It's simply lowercase s. It would be better translated, I came to find myself standing in spirit. Or you could even translate it, I came to find myself standing in another dimension on the Lord's day. And I heard a great voice 
The word great is the word mega, like the word mega, which we use, it describes something that's huge. The word voice is the word phone. You compound the two words together, it's where we get the word for a megaphone. John says it was a great, boisterous voice, and then he explains, like as a trumpet. So this was a voice which called John to attention. So now John finds himself standing in another dimension. He doesn't know how he got there. It was the last thing he would have expected. In one moment, he was literally in the aisle that is called Patmos. And notice it doesn't say on, it says in. He's identifying his location. He was in this cave, which has become known as the cave of the Revelation. When suddenly, John looked around him and he was no longer standing in this cave, but he was standing in another dimension. And he heard this great voice speaking to him. Now look at the next verse. And he heard the voice say, saying, I am Alpha and Omega. Alpha is the beginning of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the end. The first and the last. This phrase means I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I'm everything in between. Christ is describing his timelessness and his eternity. How he has always been and will always be. No beginning, no end. Say amen to that. And then Jesus says, What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamum, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto the city of Laodicea. These seven large cities with significant churches. Then in verse 12, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, underline the word saying, we'll come back to this in just a moment, saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. But particularly look at verse 12 where John writes, and I turned. I turned is the Greek word anastrophe, epistrophe, which means to completely turn around. So this tells us this was not just a spiritual experience or this was not something happening mentally or just only in the spirit realm, but this involved physical motion. John literally turned. In just a few moments, you're going to find John literally fell. There were physical elements to this experience. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Now, if you would look down very quickly at verse 20, just real quickly, I want to cover this. In verse 20, Jesus himself explains what are the stars and what are the candlesticks. Verse 20 says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The word angel is the Greek word angelos. It refers to a messenger, or in this particular case, a human messenger. This is not a reference to an angel. Let me tell you, angels have never been given the responsibility to preach and teach the word of God. Angels have never been given the responsibility to correct local congregations. And in fact, when you find that angels are giving doctrine, usually you can be sure that's going to be some kind of a cult or some kind of a sect that you ought to stay away from. Amen. 
That simply is not the responsibility of angels. And so he says the seven angels are the seven, the, the stars are the seven angels or the pastors of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So we know that the angels, the stars are the angels or the pastors. And we know that the candlesticks are the churches. Now go back to verse 12. And I physically turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now immediately we have a problem because in our modern mind, we see a candlestick like the candlestick that would be on a candelabra or on the table in your dining room. But wax candles are a recent invention. They did not exist at the time that this was written. The only kind of candlestick there was, was the same kind of candlestick which is on the front of this book. It was a small lamp, actually it's the Greek word luknas. It describes a lamp which fits in the palm of your hand. And they were very abundant. It's the very same word Jesus used when he told us that we were to be a light in darkness in the gospel of matthew when jesus said to let your light so shine before men it is exactly the very same word it is the greek word luknas and it describes a handmade hand-fashioned lamp which you could carry in your hand and no two lamps were alike there were no such thing as a cookie cutter lamp or even a factory-made lamp. Every single lamp was different. Every one of them were a little bit different in their shape. Every one of them were a little bit different in their size because they were handmade. Therefore, every single lamp had its own individuality. And you can see how this applies to the church of Jesus Christ. There are no two churches that are exactly alike. Every church has its own character. It has its own personality. And these lamps, for the most part, were made out of clay. Now there were moments when you could find these lamps that were made out of bronze, but you would never find one of these made out of silver or made out of gold. It simply wouldn't work. They were usually made out of clay. And there were different kinds of lamps. In fact, these dated all the way back to the time of David. You can buy Davidic lamps. You can even buy lamps from the time of Abraham. I have a whole collection of these lamps. In fact, the lamps that are on that book <laughs> are sitting on the shelf in my office in Moscow. Those are real 2,000-year-old lamps, exactly like the ones that Jesus is describing. And as I said, usually they were made out of clay and they were filled with oil. And oil was very expensive. Then a wick was placed into the mouth of the lamp. So there was the body of the lamp which held the oil and then the lamp had a mouth. And coming out of the mouth was the wick. And as long as the wick was stuck into the base and the base was filled with oil and was saturated, that lamp could burn for hours and hours and hours and hours. And if it's running out of oil, you could refill it so that literally a lamp of this kind would never stop burning. And now that is the illustration which Jesus uses to describe these seven churches. First of all, each of these churches were very different from one another. It's a big mistake when we compare our church to another church because there are no churches that are alike. Each of them have their own stamp. They have their own individual characteristics. And as long as we are filled with the Holy Spirit and as long as our mouth is positioned for the Word of God to be declared, and as long as we have the fire of the Holy Ghost working in the church, God's intention is that we, as a church, keep burning and 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 giving light for generations and generations. Unless we fail of oil or fail of fire, we can continue to be vital and valid for generations and generations. In fact, even the church of Ephesus, which had left its first love, you can read about it in chapter 2. Jesus told them to remember from whence they had fallen, therefore repent. Not only did they repent, the church of Ephesus remained a vital church for 500 years. So God's plan 
is that we be filled with the Spirit and burn for a long time. Can you say amen to that? Now, in this particular case, the lamps were made of? No. Gold. The Greek word krusos. The same word that would have been used to describe the most highly refined, purified gold. The same kind of gold that would have been used to make the cups or the plates for the residence of a king. You can't have gold more highly purified than Crusoe's. This is the finest gold. But yet, when you look at these churches, you find out that every one of these churches had very serious flaws. Very serious flaws. The church of Ephesus had left its first love. The church of Smyrna, bless its heart, <laughs> it was trying really hard, but it was up against religious opposition every day of its life. It was barely surviving. The church of Pergamum was settled in a city where Satan had his throne. That word throne is the Greek word thronos, the same word used to describe the chief chair at the head of the table. It literally meant to feel at home or to have the chief seat in the house. Satan was so comfortable in Pergamum, he was literally the Lord of the house. He sat at the head of the table. And it was Jesus who said Satan's throne was there. Even Jesus recognized the unique amount of authority that Satan was exercising in the city of Pergamum. And the church itself, trying to deal with paganism, was compromising. Which is the same problem that's taking place in the church today. Then you go to the church of Thyatira. And Jesus said that church had a woman named Jezebel. People get all excited about that. They teach whole teachings on the Jezebel spirit. They forget that for there to be a Jezebel, there has to be an Ahab. So it wasn't just a Jezebel problem. The pastor of the church himself was an Ahab which literally means he couldn't decide. Do you remember the story about Ahab? God said to him, you can't seem to make up your mind who you're going to serve. And this pastor, apparently like Ahab, would not take authority in his church, and his pastor ran the, was manipulating him, using him, and she was teaching a doctrine of compromise because in the city of Thyatira, there were guilds or there were associations. And the only way you could get a job in the guild or the association or in the city at all is if you were willing to participate in the pagan sacrifices which were involved in every guild. And this woman was teaching, what does it harm you to burn a little incense to the gods? What's wrong with behaving a little bit like the world, looking like the world, acting like the world? Come on, we don't have to live such separate lives. It will guarantee us good jobs. It will guarantee us acceptance in society. And she was teaching a doctrine of compromise, which is exactly what's happening in the church today. It's a very serious problem, so serious, Jesus said he was going to kill her. Now, friends, that's pretty strong language. And her children were the fruit of what she had taught. Then there was the church of Sardis. The church of Sardis had a name that it was alive, but Jesus said it was dead. Then there was the church of Philadelphia. Church of Philadelphia didn't receive a single rebuke, but it was very small in numbers. So it didn't have the manpower that it needed to effectively do the job. And then there was the church in the city of Laodicea. I've been to Laodicea many times. I can tell you all about the city of Laodicea. Laodicea was a fabulous, rich city. In fact, when you read Jesus' words to Laodicea, he says, you're rich and increased with goods. Do you remember that? I personally counted. I mean, me, Rick Renner, and the scholars that were traveling with me, I did personal research to know how many shops were in the city of Laodicea. We stopped counting at 4,500. 4,500 shops in the city of Laodicea. It was rich and increased with goods. But Jesus said it was lukewarm. Everybody say lukewarm. Can I just stop there and give you something to think about? 
Laodicea didn't have any water. Kind of a crazy place to build a city, isn't it? Build a city where there's no water. But if you go to the east of Laodicea, you will come to the city of Colossae. It's very close. And the city of Colossae had cool waters which came from springs and came from the snow on top of the mountains. And in fact, the water was so cold and so refreshing that people would go there in the summer times and it became a retreat center. It's where everyone went for their vacations because the water was so cool and refreshing. Everybody say refreshing. Then, on the other side of Laodicea was the city of Hierapolis, and guess what Hierapolis had? Thermal hot springs. And everyone went there in the winter because it was so wonderful. And the springs are still there today. They are beautiful. In fact, it was so famous even at that time that Antony and Cleopatra had been there and had spent an entire winter bathing in the thermal springs of Hierapolis healing, healing water. And right in the middle was the city of Laodicea that had neither cold nor hot water. It didn't have any water at all. But when they constructed the city, they came up with this brilliant engineering idea which no one had ever attempted before to build pipes from Laodicea and build pipes from Hierapolis so it would become the first city in the world that had running hot and cold water. It was a brilliant idea. And finally the construction commenced and they began to build the pipes from the city of Colossae to bring the cool, refreshing, everybody say refreshing, waters. And then they begin to build the pipes from Hierapolis, which are still evident today. You can see them to bring the hot healing waters from Hierapolis. And finally, the announcement was made that it was time to turn on the pipes to let the water flow. And the people waited. And when the water arrived from Colossae, and when the water arrived from Hierapolis, it had traveled so far in these pipes that by the time it reached the city of Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It was no longer cool and refreshing. It was no longer hot, healing, and therapeutic. And not only that, because of the minerals used in the pipes, the water had collected the residue along the way. And when they tasted it, it was disgusting. And people's immediate reaction was to spit it out of their mouth. And that is why Jesus said, I have this against you because you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. I want to spit you out of my mouth. It's the story of a church which was no longer refreshing and was no longer healing. So when we talk about these seven churches, we're not talking about ideal churches. All seven of these churches have problems. And there will always be problems in any church. There's no such thing as a perfect church because churches are made of human beings. And as I said in the second service this morning, it is so amazing that God would choose human beings as the place of his habitation. <laughs> when I look in the mirror and look at me, sometimes I think... If I was God, I don't know if I'd want to live in there. <laughs> you ever thought about it? Just take a good look at yourself. Why would God want to live in that? It's part of the miracle of being the church. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, but we have this treasure. The word treasure, the Greek word thes thesaron, it's where we get the word for a thesaurus. It describes a treasure that is unfolding, ever, never ending. Such an exhaustible treasure in earthen vessels. Earthen vessels is the Greek word osterkinos, which described a specific kind of pottery that was used in Corinth. Well, Paul was writing to the Corinthians when he said that. Denise and I are from Oklahoma. And there was a kind of pottery in Oklahoma that was called Francoma. Have any of you ever heard of Francoma pottery? It was made by a man named Frank. <laughs> and everybody knew that because it was local pottery. That was Oklahoma pottery. It was not expensive. 
It was Francoma. Well, in Corinth, they had Ostrichinos, and guess what it was? It was the low-quality, second-rate pottery filled with flaws, but the Corinthians would paint it, they would decorate it, so it became very pretty, but this was really cheap, cheap, cheap pottery, and if it broke, you could easily replace it. Ostrichinos, and that's the word which Paul uses when he says God has placed his spirit, his treasure in Referring to us. <laughs> Earthen vessels. Which really means seconds. <laughs> Fragile. Breakable. Cover it up with cosmetics. Cover it with paint. Do everything you can to make it look better. But in fact, it's still the same old Ostrichinos earthen vessels. And when Paul wrote about this, he wrote with such a sense of amazement himself. Paul was familiar with himself. I think Paul was amazed that God would even live inside him. Paul was a man of great emotion. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I personally believe was his daily confession. I think he looked at himself and said, love is patient, love is kind. I think Paul was talking to himself when he wrote that chapter. Because Paul was a very volatile individual, had a hard time controlling his temper, and yet God had placed his spirit inside him. Oh. In fact, when Paul wrote about this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, don't you know that your body is the what? Temple of the Holy Ghost, the word temple, the Greek word naos, it describes a highly decorated shrine. The only thing that I know that would even closely compare would be an Orthodox church in Russia, something filled with gold and silver and precious gems and marble, something so magnificent. And my friend, you may not like the way that you look on the outside, most of us don't. But on the inside, when the Holy Spirit came in and we were born again, he recreated the human spirit and inside of us there is a temple, a highly decorated shrine, so magnificent that God himself said, I think I'm going to move in there. It's amazing. And so when Jesus, when these seven churches appear, though these lamps would normally be made out of clay, fragile, breakable, in this particular case they're made out of pure gold, the same material for kings, because we are the containers of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Even though we're fragile, we are very precious, very valuable to God. And don't rag on the church. Because the church is the habitation of God in the earth. Does it have its problems? Of course it has its problems. Do you? Yes. And anywhere there's human beings, there's going to be flaws. But the church contains the Holy Ghost. It was purchased with the blood of Jesus himself. And in the eyes of God. We are pure gold. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're pure gold. This church is gold. And look who was standing in the midst. I saw seven golden lamps, actually the Greek says. And in the very midst, the Greek word meson, which means in the very gut of a thing, in the very gut of it, not on the exterior, not far, but right in the very middle of it, I saw one like unto the Son of Man. Like unto means in one way it looked like him, but yet in another way it didn't look like him. The word like unto refers to the outward form. Je John remembered the outward form of Jesus. He could see that this looked like Jesus, but yet there was something so different from what he recalled about Jesus. And then he begins to describe the specific characteristics that he saw or observed in the exalted Christ. And I want you to see this. Let's look at it. Are you ready? 
And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, or lamps, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in all of his strength. But notice back in verse 13, he said, One like unto the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the foot. Now, as you look at this list, there are things which are much more visible or prominent than that. For instance, it immediately says he had about the paps a golden girdle. Huh, that's pretty noticeable, very impressive. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword. You would think that these would have been the features which John would have described first, but it's not what he saw first. What he saw first in this progressive revelation was he saw Christ dressed in a garment down to the foot. And I covered this in the service this morning. This is exactly a description of the garments which were worn by the priests described in Exodus chapter 28. They wore a garment down to their foot. Their feet were not covered and they wore no shoes because they walked in the Holy of Holies. They walked in the very presence of God and therefore they wore nothing upon their feet because you are not to wear shoes according to the Old Testament, when you come into the presence of God. You're not to carry the filth of the world into that place. It shows that Jesus was completely free of contamination. And now we find as he stands in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, though he sees everything about them, to all seven churches, he said, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I explicitly know everything about you. How did he know? He was standing in the midst like a bishop. He was overseeing them. But now we see he does not come first as a judge. But first he appears as a priest hovering over his church to make intercession for them. And when you come to chapter 2 and verse 1, you find he's not even standing in a stationary position. It says he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Jesus doesn't just stay in one spot. He is literally walking among these candlesticks, observing, looking, examining everything that is happening in the midst of them, walking in his high priestly gown. But then it immediately says, gird about the paps with a golden girdle. I know the word paps is a weird word. But it describes the upper chest. Kings wore girdles. Usually kings wore them around the waist. And their garments would be gathered up in a way so that when they walked, their lower garments would flow majestically. But the more powerful you were, the more higher you lifted that belt. The higher the belt, the greater was the sweeping action of the garment. And now we find Jesus doesn't have a belt around his waist, not even around his midriff, but around the paps. It's all the way around the top. So now we see, secondly, he is revealed as a king, not just a king, but a majestic king. And as he walks, his garment is moving in a sweeping, majestic fashion. And the belt, which is wrapped around his chest, is made of pure gold. Very few kings were able to afford pure gold belts around their being. In fact, usually their belts were made out of beads with all kinds of ceramic and glass, maybe a mixture of gold, but very rarely was there ever a belt made of pure gold. This would require the most powerful and the most majestic king. And therefore, when John saw Jesus, first of all, he saw that this was his great high priest. Secondly, he saw not only was Jesus a high priest, but because of the position of his golden sash, he understood Jesus was the real king. This was the most majestic king of all kings. And then, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as 
snow. Well, it would have been natural to look from that golden chest right into his face, but couldn't look into his face because his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. The same phrase was used to describe Jesus in his transfiguration. And when you read it in the Greek, it describes the blinding effect of snow in the middle of the afternoon when suddenly the sunlight shines upon it and you can't look because the sight of the sun on the snow is so blinding. This was nearly a blinding look. Jesus was so white, was so glorious. And the whiteness would refer to antiquity and to his purity, absolute purity. So now John sees him as a high priest. John sees him as a majestic king. And John sees him in his purity and in blinding glory. Next it says, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. It doesn't say his eyes were fire. It says his eyes were as, the Greek means like, similar to, had the same effect as a flame of fire. Now, I don't know about you, but I have seen some paintings that people have tried to do of this. It's very difficult to paint this. And people have tried to paint pictures of Jesus with fire burning in his eyes. And it's very strange to see this. But it doesn't say his eyes were fire. It says they were similar to. They had the same effects as not even fire. But what? A flame of fire. How many of you have sat and looked in the fireplace for a long time? What happens when you sit and look at fire? You look at all the flames as they twist and they turn and they bend and they arch and they intersect. It is so amazing to look at a flame of fire. In fact, I know we're probably not supposed to use this word in our circles, but in a certain way, fire has a hypnotic effect. The longer you look at fire, it's like you are drawn into the flames. And have you ever noticed how you could just sit and stare at fire for the longest period of time? There is intelligence in the fire, the way that it moves and interacts. There's beauty in fire. And John said, when I looked at his eyes, and you know what the Greek says? The Greek says, when I looked at the eyes of him, he was totally pulled into these eyes. He saw something in these eyes that he had never seen before. The eyes of him, uniquely different than any eyes that he had ever seen before. The eyes of him were like a flickering flame of fire. John is describing the effect of seeing into his eyes, the intelligence in his eyes, the knowledge in his eyes, the life in his eyes, until, Jesus was, until John was nearly mesmerized, totally captivated, totally taken by the look in his eyes. Then he says, and his feet, like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Well, remember he had on no shoes because he is also our high priest. And yet his feet, this word feet is the word podos. It describes bare feet, unclothed feet. Like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And if you study what the scholars say about this, they're all confused about it. Because the Greek word is so strange that is used here, the word is impossible. It is the word kalkos, which is the word for bronze, the same word used in the Old Testament for judgment. So the use of this word kalkos, here translated brass or bronze, would indicate judgment on the feet of Jesus. But yet the second part of this word is the word libanos. And the word libanos, this is what is so strange, is the Greek word for frankincense. So now we find an alloy 
of metal and frankincense. Those things don't mix. They simply don't mix. Bronze and frankincense, they don't mix together. So what in the world is this? And the majority of scholars will try to tell you this and try to tell you that, and basically at the end they'll tell you it's very hard to have any idea what this means. Now, I don't know if the Hammonds have any bronze pieces in your house. But Denise and I have some bronze pieces. I love art. And bronze is very heavy. It's very heavy. In the middle of our TV room, we sit on our couch. We have our big centerpiece table. What's that called? Coffee table? Big, big coffee table. And on the other side of it is the big shelf where we have our TV. And Denise and I sit together in the same place every day. We read together. Sometimes we watch Christian TV together. It's not very often, but sometimes we do. But there's something that obstructs Denise's view. Because right in the middle of our coffee table, there is a bronze of a Russian bear. It's beautiful. And if I'm tired and I'm sitting there, Denise will say, honey, I can't see the TV. Would you move that bronze? If I ask Denise to move the bronze, it's quite a funny sight because she's just trying so hard to pick it up because bronze is very heavy. So the first thing we find is Jesus' feet are made of bronze. Well, just imagine suddenly that your feet were made of bronze. How fast would you move? You wouldn't move very fast, would you? In fact, you would have to think about every movement of your foot as you slowly picked it up to move in a direction. Your movement would not be hasty. It would not be rash. It would be very slow and very deliberate. So first of all, we know that his feet were like bronze. Secondly, libanos, the word frankincense, it describes like glowing in a furnace. It's just a bad translation. It describes the hue of frankincense. Jesus' feet carried the hue of frankincense, which was used in the Holy of Holies. It was used in the temple. 700 pounds of it every year was used in the temple, which tells us Jesus is not in a rush to judgment to these seven churches. He has sent a letter to all seven of them through John. But Jesus is moving so slowly and has so bathed himself in this issue. He is so saturated in prayer concerning these churches. Jesus is moving steadily in their direction, but slow enough to give them time to respond before he arrives with judgment. Jesus never rushes to judgment, my friends. He'll speak to you and wait to see what you do. And he'll move very slowly. We know that God's patience is amazing. Can somebody say amen to that? Then, notice what it says next. Are you guys enjoying this? Are you learning anything new? Next it says, And his voice is the sound of many waters. Well, the island of Patmos was beset with a lot of storms at sea. And where John lived, the waters would have just reverberated right up into that cave. And when John heard his voice, he said, wow, it's so overpowering. I don't know if you have ever been to the sea in the middle of a storm, but when you're near the sea in the middle of a storm, you can't hear anything else. You can scream at the person standing next to you. They can't hear you because of the sound of many waters. And now we find that when Jesus speaks, no other voice can be heard. Verse 16. And he had in his right hand, what? Seven stars. Does anybody recall the name of the emperor who sent John to the island of Patmos? Domitian. Domitian believed that he was God. In fact, he believed that he was Jupiter. Zeus. He believed he was Zeus. 
He was so convinced that he was Zeus, he built statues of himself all over the empire, and he was called Domitian Jupiter. He had a child that died. And when the child died, he declared that his dead son had become his universal co-ruler. Are you all with me? His universal co-ruler. And in Asia Minor, where John lived, where he was arrested, in the city of Ephesus, there was a massive temple to Domitian. It was massive. In fact, the head of Domitian from that temple still exists in the Museum of Ephesus. If you were to set it in front of me, the head would be as big as the floor to the top of my head, just the head of this idol. So in Ephesus, everyone was compelled to worship Domitian. And Domitian minted a coin. And on one side of the coin was the head or the bust of Domitian. On the other side of the coin was a picture of his dead son sitting on a planet playing with seven stars indicating that his dead son and he on both flip sides of the coin together had mastery of the universe his delusions of grandeur were so huge he went beyond the earth he was now the lord of the universe with his dead son and every time somebody went to the store in Ephesus to buy a loaf of bread and they pulled out a coin to buy that bread. Guess what they saw in their hands? Well, there's just two choices. They either saw the head of Domitian or on the flip side, his dead son playing with seven stars. Now as John is having this revelation, it's Domitian that has sent him to this island. It's Domitian that is causing the church to suffer. It's Domitian who claims to be God. And now Jesus speaks in language which John especially will understand. In the midst of this revelation, it is almost like Jesus says, oh yeah, and John, let me show you something. He pulls out his hand, and in his hand are seven stars which meant to John, if you want to know who's really calling the shots in the universe, is not that wicked ruler who sent you here or his dead son. I am the one who is Lord of the universe. Everybody say, Jesus is Lord of all. Isn't that amazing? John knew immediately what that was. He didn't need an explanation. And I was going to show you, I'll pull a book, Billy Brim. You know, Billy's always showing you something from a book. There's a picture of the coin with his dead son and the seven stars. Then, next it says, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Well, we think that this is a sword like from the Middle Ages, but in fact it is the Greek word ramphia, which was a Thracian sword. It was not even a Roman sword. It wasn't a Greek sword. It was a Thracian sword. Oh, the Thracians were awful. Awful, awful, awful. They were brutal killers. And ramphia sword, which is what this is, it's the Greek word ramphia, didn't describe a sword like we normally think of, but it was a sword that was very long, in fact, it was a pole, and on the end of the pole was attached something that looked like the sickle that you would use if you were out harvesting wheat. And it was sharpened on both sides. And this sword was used for hacking. Not for slicing, not for cutting, for hacking. That's why it was on the end of a pole. People feared this. It's one reason that the Romans had to work so hard to develop their armor because they could not resist the hacking action of the Thracian sword. And that is what's coming out of the mouth of Jesus. 
you would use this to touch your enemy without getting up close. And the word sharp is the Greek word oxus. The word oxus, same word in Russian, by the way, describes... I forgot that word in English. No, no, no. What do they give you when you have surgery? They give you an anesthetic. It is the Greek word for an anesthetic. Even back in those days, before they would perform surgery on you, they would give you something to anesthetize you so that you don't feel the pain of the surgery. So now we see that Jesus is coming, and in some of these churches, there really is some spiritual sickness. Thyatira is very sick. The church of Pergamum has great sickness. And now we find that Jesus, in all of his holiness, he won't even get close to some of this spiritual spiritual error. So he comes with an instrument long enough to touch it, but that he doesn't have to touch it himself. And because Jesus loves the church and doesn't want to hurt anybody, he comes with oxus, which is the effect of the Holy Spirit to anesthetize us before he begins the process of slicing away at those things which need to be changed in our heart. How many of you ever noticed that about the Holy Spirit, that he will prepare your heart, that he will soften the blow and then slice? I think that's powerful. Jesus is going to extract the disease. But first he will give us what we need to know the pain. And this hacking action was important because Jesus had told, for instance, the Nicolaitans, I've got some serious things about you guys. And if they didn't repent and get in order, there would be some hacking that was going to take place. Jesus was going to remove these elements from the church. I'm telling you, friends, we need to be careful that we don't teach compromise. It's a serious thing in the mind of Jesus. It's disease. And his countenance, that refers to his face, was as the sun shineth in his strength. That doesn't need any elaboration. Verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. The word fell means to collapse, as though the strength completely went out of him. The word dead is the Greek word nikras. It's where you get the word for a corpse. In fact, it is so much the word for a corpse that there are some theologians who have insinuated John may have actually died and had a resurrection here. I don't think you can prove that from the text, but it is the word necros. He fell like a dead man. The life went out of him. And notice what it says next. And he laid his right hand upon me. And I asked you to underline this next statement. Saying unto me, Notice, it doesn't say, and he said to me, but what? Saying unto me, fear not. I am the first and the last. When John sees Christ in all of his glory, and we don't know how long this took place, the Bible doesn't tell us. When his mind tried to comprehend everything that he was seeing, and when his being became so saturated by the glory of God that was emanating from this exalted Christ, when John saw him, he collapsed as one dead. And he laid his right hand upon me. This word laid means to tenderly lay. Saying unto me, fear not. The Greek is a participle. And here we see the picture of Jesus. Great Jesus, exalted Jesus, all-powerful Jesus, ruler of the universe, majestic king, high priest, in all of his glory, all of his power. In order for him to lay his right hand upon John, who has collapsed. Jesus has to bow. And Jesus bows and tenderly places his hand upon him. 
John said, saying unto me, fear not. The Greek participle literally means, and he kept saying and saying and saying and saying, hey, hey, fear not, hey, hey, hey. Almost as though you would reach out to shake somebody or to get their attention or to try to make them not be afraid. He kept on saying to me, would be a better translation, hey, it's going to be all right, don't fear. Fear not, fear not. And the words fear not are exactly the same words which Jesus used throughout his earthly ministry when he would say, fear not, fear not, fear not. Even though Jesus looked different, there were elements that were exactly the same. His outward appearance was glorious. It was grand, almost beyond description. But his voice was the same. His compassionate touch was the same. His word to his disciples, fear not, was the same. And we find Jesus touching John, touching him, shaking him, saying and saying, hey, 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 fear not. Hey, fear not. Fear not, fear not, until finally John is roused. And Jesus next says, I am the first and the last. I am he that lives. Their Greek literally means perpetually lives forevermore and was dead. Now isn't that interesting, was dead. The word was literally means death was a brief interruption in my eternal life. <laughs> I was dead. It was just a brief interruption. But I am alive perpetually forevermore. And then Jesus says, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That word behold is not translatable. Every place you use it in the New Testament, it's really not translatable. So the King James translators translated it behold. But you know what word it is? The closest translation you can come to it, and even this fails, is wow. When Jesus said to the disciples, behold, I give you authority over all the works of the enemy, it's the same word. Jesus was so impressed with it. Jesus said, and wow, am I ever giving you authority over the works of the enemy? When Jesus said, behold, I'm sending the Holy Spirit, and wow, if you only understood what I was sending to you, it's the expression that someone would use when they are so excited they don't know how to express themselves. And now when Jesus talks about his return from the interruption of death and says, behold, I'm alive forevermore, it is literally, and wow, listen to this, death will never get me again. I am perpetually, eternally alive. Wow. And then we see Jesus is excited at his own preaching because Jesus says, Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Hell is the word Hades, describes the underworld, everything dark, everything demonic. Death being the final frontier, he has already crossed it, he has already passed it, he's got the keys to hell and death. Now go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm closing. How does it begin? What's the first two words? Then what does it say? The revelation of Jesus Christ. You can talk about all the beasts in the book of Revelation. The city on seven hills. All of those things and all of them are important. They're part of this. But when John walked away from this experience... The thing that impacted him the most is what he wrote in the opening statement. This was the unveiling 
of Jesus Christ.